Um, Matthew 2, 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then King when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Hello everybody, it's good to be with you online. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 2 of Matthew, which we've just had read. And we're going to be thinking about how the, the, the topic really for tonight is the king is here and how do we respond? So kind of really given away the ending already, but that's generally what we're going to think about tonight. And as I was preparing for uh, today for the sermon, I was thinking about uh, the, the movie that Will Smith's in about Muhammad Ali. And there's a moment where he goes into a gym and there's a bongo drum set up uh, in the corner and he walks over and announces that he's here by going... The champ is here, the champ is here, and goes on like that for a few times. And it's this big kind of, oh, I don't know, uh, I, I find it quite arrogant, but there, it's not really, it was just him in full confidence declaring that he is here, announcing that he has arrived. And for the Jews at the time when Jesus was born, they were expecting their Messiah, their King, to come in a similar way, to come banging on drums or to be some big announcement that he's here. But what we find in the Gospel of Matthew, actually throughout all the Gospels, is that Jesus doesn't arrive in that way, but he actually arrives in a very different way, very counter to what they were expecting, but very much in line with what God had promised throughout the Old Testament. In fact, when we read through Matthew's Gospel, he actually alludes a lot to the Old Testament and, and he pulls a lot of those references in to really show us that Jesus came as the climax of the Old Testament storyline. That he is this long-awaited, this long-prophesied Messiah, the King who will bring the fulfillment of God's promises, that he will rescue God's people uh, in this broken world and restore this broken world. And so Matthew does this by pulling together the Old Testament. In fact, he does it in chapter 1, which we didn't read, but we're looking at a bit tonight, by pulling together Jesus' family tree. Now, the way that Matthew pulls it together is actually quite different to how it would be culturally expected in the time. See, back then, it would be normal for the family tree to highlight and only have men in the family line, to have them pointed out along the tree line. But what Matthew does is he actually, he actually references four women in this family tree. 
And they're not always the most noble of women. It's not like uh, Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, who was very righteous and, and followed God. But we see people like, for example, we see in there, we see uh, Tamar, who posed her, uh, as, as a prostitute. Uh, Rahab is in here as well. And she was a prostitute in verse 5. And we have Bathsheba, who was treated like a prostitute by David. And so these women are not very noble in their beginnings, but they have great faith in God. And not only that, but mixed in with this Jewish line, we find scattered throughout those who have been showered in the grace of God, but are Gentiles. So Jesus' family tree is quite mixed. And the question, I guess, to answer is why is this important as Matthew is announcing that the king is here? Well, he wants to show that Jesus didn't come from a particular gender or race or a type of sinner, but in fact woven into the very family tree of our Saviour are the diverse kinds of people that he has come to save. And so it's very important that Matthew announces that the king has come in this way, not on drums, but in this very unique way. Because this king has come to save the world. In fact, that's what his name means. Jesus is the uh, Greek uh, interpretation of the Hebrew word Joseph. And Joseph means Yahweh saves. And so Jesus comes as that fulfillment, as the one who will save, but not just save like Moses did. There's a lot of reference to Exodus and to Moses and how Moses saved God's people out of the reign, from under the reign of the Egyptian Pharaoh. Jesus will save in a very different way. Jesus will not save from a reign of a earthly king, but from the reign of sin. Jesus will save the entire world. All those who trust and believe in him, he will save us all from our sin. That is our greatest need. That is the root issue that Jesus has come to save us from. And so when this name is declared, this king whose name is Jesus, we see that, that this declaration is actually on full display at the end of Jesus' life as well. Because when Jesus dies, he takes the sin upon himself. He takes our sin, your sin, my sin upon himself and he defeats it once and for all. So it no longer has reign over us. It no longer rules us. We are no longer slaves to it. But we are free because of Jesus. That's in the chapter one of the announcement that, that Matthew gives. But then we get to chapter two, which is what we've just read. And I can't help but as been preparing and reading through this, just to have a million and one questions. Things like this star that is, that's mentioned here, what was it like? What did it look like? Where was it? What was it? How did the, the Magi, these wise men, how did they connect the dots with the star and the birth of the king? How many Magis were there? We often talk about them being three, but that's not mentioned. We don't, we don't know. What do they look like? Where did they die? Where did they come from? How long did they travel? How long did it, did it take longer to go back because they went a different way than the way they came? And there's so many more questions, and you might have had them too. Why, why are there so many questions without answers? Well, I think the, the reason why Matthew paints it this way, why he doesn't give us the answers and why he leaves us a little bit in the dark is to actually make this story that Matthew puts before us even more beautiful and even more helpful. See, everything is left out of the picture so that we can have full emphasis. The full emphasis is actually placed on what the Magi come to do, which is to come and worship 
Jesus, to come and worship the King, the King of the Jews. That is what it is all about. That is what this story is about. They've heard the King has been born. They've seen the signs and now they have come to worship him. Everything else is meaningless in the story. This is the focus. This is the emphasis. This is the point. And so Matthew leaves it all aside so that we can see this clearly. See, Matthew wants us to hear this and to see this as we read this so clearly that in this moment when these Gentiles, these Magi, these wise men, they're not Jews, they're Gentiles. When they come and worship the King of the Jews, that there is this word of encouragement that the King of the Jews desires to be the King of the Gentiles also. That is that King Jesus desires to be your King and my King too. That is what, what Matthew wants to highlight, what he wants to emphasize by leaving out the, the answers to all these other questions and zero in on this one thing. And so the question I have for us is how do the people in our story respond to this king, to this announcement of the king? Well, we see a few responses, two responses I want to focus on. One is Herod. Now, Herod was known as Herod the Great. He was, he was made king, I guess, or ruler of uh, Judea by the Romans, generally considered around about 40 BC. And most people think that he died around about 4 BC. Now, he got the name Herod the Great because he was a ruthless tyrant. He... He did some really horrible things and he was very, uh, people feared him, but he got the job done. But not only that, he actually did some really amazing things. He, he rebuilt the, the temple in Jerusalem and a whole bunch of other significant works. And not only that, but at the time, he was the only ruler who had actually brought peace and order to Palestine. However, when this great king, Herod the Great, when he heard the words in verse 2 of chapter 2 that the Magi say, have a look with me, where he says the, the Magi come and they ask Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? When, they heard this, when Herod heard this, these words, the one born king, rather than the one born to a king or to the king, where these Magi are actually they're talking about they're talking about what, who Jesus is, not about what he will be. This actually, this born king, these words of a born king strike fear into Herod because he realizes that his throne is in jeopardy. He, really, he freaks out, really. He's, he's absolutely petrified of what this means because what we actually see in his actions afterwards is that he is so worried about his throne. He's so concerned about saving his throne that he forgets about, uh, or he is just really more concerned about that than saving his own soul. Now, what Herod doesn't realise is that he's on a, con on a collision course with something that will not move. Have you ever played the game of chicken where you, two things are moving at the same time and the last one pulls out? You know, that means the other person's a winner. Well, you're playing chicken with something that won't move. And it reminds me of a story that I once heard. Uh, it was about a, a, kip, a captain of a ship and... It was a dark and kind of misty night and he saw off in the distance some dim lights. And so he got his, uh, his uh, signalman to communicate to the lights that were off in the distance. And the message was this. It was, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. 
A prompt reply came back saying, alter your course 10 degrees north. Now this made the captain furious because he was a captain. Everyone should listen, not ignore him. And so he sent back again saying, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. But this time he said, I am the captain, the very authority. This is what, this is what it is. Then the message came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman third class which I think is less. Now this totally threw the captain into hysterics. He just went mental and into a fit of rage and he said, right, send this message back. This is it. This will drive fear into this uh, person who's sending these messages. He says, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. The idea that I will blow you up if you don't. Now a brief moment passed and then the message came back. Again, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. There is no way the lighthouse was going anywhere. It was actually the battleship that needed to change course. Here Herod is so fixated on, on his throne that he doesn't want to alter his course. He doesn't realise that he's on a collision course with someone far greater than himself. When we stand opposed to Jesus, we find ourselves on a collision course with someone far greater than ourselves. And this is what Herod didn't realise at the time. In fact, it is made even more clear what is going on here in what follows in Matthew 2. Because in verse 6, we see this light shining again and this voice, this message going out in, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 2 which references uh, Micah 5, verse 2. And what's interesting here is that, that when, when uh, Herod asks the Jewish religious leaders, the religious gurus, what this means, this star and what's going on, they knew exactly where the Messiah would be born. But for some reason, both Herod and these Jewish religious leaders do nothing about this report that's brought to them by the Magi, by the wise men. In fact, they just wait and see. They don't actually actively go and do anything, except for Herod who plots to, uh, to bring ruin to this new king. Now, Matthew puts all this together to, for us to see Herod and the religious leaders to act in contrast to the way that the Magi, the wise men, respond. Because here's how they respond. We see that in verse 2, we see that they seek the king. They see the signs and they go looking for him. In fact, it is God who gives them the sign of this star that will actually lead them right to the doorstep of the king. And the thing here is that Jesus is no longer a baby like we see in our nativity stories. He's actually an infant. He's no longer in the manger, but in a house. And here we see the Magi going, following the star right to the doorstep of the king. They go seeking after the king. And then verse 10, we see that after they have um, met with Herod, that they see the star and they are full of joy. They are bursting with joy. Why? Because they know that they are about to come face to face with the king of the world, the king of the universe. Do you know that one day you and I will stand face to face with this same king? And I wonder whether we are bursting with joy for that day, whether we are looking forward with great excitement to stand before Jesus and say, I can now finally see you face to face. My, my life, my joy is made complete. 
But more than that, not only uh, do they seek and are they full of joy in the king, but we see that when they come before the king, they give to the king. In verse 11. Now, often what we do is we, uh, in our nativity stories at Christmas time, we get caught up in this wonderful uh, giving of these three gifts, which is why we tend to think there's three magi, three wise men. But even though we're not really told, there's just three types of gifts. But there's more to it than what is actually there. In fact, there's a, a funny story uh, about a little boy, about a, I think he was about seven years old, and one day before church, he wanted to take his teddy bear that he called Frank to church. And his parents protested. They said, no, you can't take Frank to church. We'll lose him. It's not going to be good. You know, this little boy, he insisted. And basically his parents uh, relented and let him take Frank to church. Now, when the offertory plate came across in front of him during church, he put Frank on the, uh, on the offertory plate and put some coins in and sent it on its way. Now, when asked about this later, it was really interesting because his response to this was, well, the Bible says that the wise man brought uh, Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense and mirth. Now, I don't have any gold and I have no idea what mirth is. So I gave them Frank and some sense. Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it, for a boy of that age? But there had been a bit of confusion on what had happened. And sometimes we can get a little bit confused. That we think that we need to give Jesus things when what he requires is our faith in him, for us to trust him. And that is exactly what the Magi did, is they put their faith in him. See, uh, J.C. Ryle, a 19th century Christian minister, once said this. He said of, of these Magi, of these wise men, he said, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no wise words out of his mouth. They saw nothing but a newborn infant on the lap of a poor woman, but they worshipped him. No greater faith than this can be found in the whole volume of the Bible. And how true is it that what the greatest gift is given in this moment is not gold, frankincense or mirth, but the fact that they bow down and worshipped the king. In faith, they poured out their life before him. This is the contrast of the response to King Jesus in this first two chapters of Matthew. We have this contrasting response between Herod and the Magi of faith and rejection. And this faith and rejection contrast shouldn't surprise us because this is the pattern of Jesus' entire life. This is the pattern that Matthew will, will continue to replay over and over again throughout his gospel how Jesus starts his life of being either people accepting or rejecting is how he will also finish his life. By the ultimate act of rejection, when they, he is put on the cross and dies. And in fact, these are the responses that we still see today. There is either faith in Jesus or there is rejection of Jesus. And so I want to finish up our time now by asking you this question. How will we respond to King Jesus? How are you responding to King Jesus, maybe? I think for us, we have this great internal struggle because we like to be kings and queens of our own lives. We like to be in control. We like to rule the way that we live, to do things our way, to not be told what we should and shouldn't do. 
And when we hear of another king, we can feel like our throne is in jeopardy. And we can freak out and reject Jesus. We can, we can maybe be more concerned about saving our own throne than we are in saving our soul. So then how are we to respond? Well, like the Magi, who didn't come to give gifts, but came to worship the king, to give their lives to him, to put their faith in him, to trust in him, to stand face to face with the king and say, I love you and I trust you and I will give you my life. One day we will stand before the king. Will we say, King Jesus, I love you. I've always loved you and I've put my faith in you and I've given you my life. And here I am. You have died for my sin. You have freed me from my sin. Is that what we will say when we stand before our king? If that is what you will say, then I want to encourage you to keep responding day after day like that. But if you're still thinking through this, you're still searching and seeking out the king. Here he is. The, the announcement is here before you. The king is here. How will you respond? We only have a certain amount of time in this life to respond to that call. Herod only had a small amount of, of time to make that response. He failed. Don't fail to make that, that response as the Magi did. Because how we respond now matters because there are no second chances. One day, we will stand in front of Jesus, our King, and what a wonderful, glorious day that will be. And I look forward to standing there next to you, face to face with each other and with our King. And I look forward to that day where we will just do the, the, the biggest and most amazing group hug of joy and excitement because here we are with our King forever and ever. Our king is here and we're going to be hearing more about what our king has come to do and what he did do while he lived on this earth and what that matters now, for now and for our eternity. I want to pray for us as, uh, as we finish up. Dear gracious God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the announcement that we find in Matthew. Father, we pray that you would help us to think how we respond to our king, King Jesus. Amen. Amen.